The title of the sermon today is The Beginning of Discipleship. I'm pretty excited. The beginning of discipleship. And as, as Brother Matt read at Matthew 28, the Great Commission, discipleship starts and ends with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the architect of discipleship. Jesus Christ is the one who empowers us to disciple one another. As he says, lo, I am with you to the end of the age. Jesus Christ is the one we want to all look like. And someday we will look like him even more. And since discipleship is the great commission for every single Christian to follow, it is the central theme of our church. Discipleship. At Evergreen Church, discipleship is the common thread that goes through everything that we do. Every ministry, every teaching opportunity, every relationship that we have that's meaningful is designed for us to disciple one another. For example, we got our adult basketball league. That's great. This is where we exhort our leaders to make sure somehow this is building into the discipleship experience here at Evergreen Church. It's more than just playing some basketball, having fun, getting some exercise. Our 55-plus ministry, what a wonderful thing. Pastor Ron is spearheading with a couple other leaders. Our leaders are exhorted, make sure this 55-plus ministry is building into the discipleship experience here at Evergreen. What a great thing that we get to do. Anytime that we have an opportunity to serve, our leaders are instructed to shepherd those who are serving. Because as we serve, all kinds of things are coming up. As Pastor Dan has been teaching our staff about uh, biblical uh, counseling, he says certain heats bring up certain fruit in our lives, whether it's good or even bad. Our shepherds are asked to look for these things so that we could address these things, encourage the good, and help address the root of the bad. It's all about discipleship. It's more than just getting a job done. It's about building up one another. And really how we define discipleship here at Evergreen Church is to be committing, committing to intentional relationships that build Christ-likeness. Our hope is that we provide formal opportunities of discipleship so that more powerfully informal relationships are being birthed between one of, one of, one of, one of one another. And so that we could help each other as friends. And live the Christian life. And that's what, this is what we're hoping that happens. And so, and I have a question as we start our sermon. Why is discipleship so critical? Why is, it, why is it important to understand what discipleship is all about? i got three things that I'm just going to throw out just as a form of motivation, the so what of why we need to listen up very carefully here today, church. Number one, if you want to be faithful, you need to know what you need to do. As a church, we want to be faithful. Therefore, we need to hear from the Lord what discipleship is all about. Number two, to the unbeliever in here, perhaps you're, you're invited by a friend, a family member, and you're exploring Christianity, and you're trying to understand what this is about. A disciple is synonymous for Christian. Meaning, if you're a Christian, you're a disciple or follower of Christ. And this is the difference between life and death. This is critical, my friends that have come here. If you're a disciple, you look of Jesus Christ, you look forward to eternal life. If you're not a disciple of Jesus Christ, eternal judgment waits. Thirdly, perhaps you've been sitting here in the local church 
whether at Evergreen or you come from a different church, for many years. The Bible says, test yourself to see if you're in the faith. Perhaps, children, you grow up in a Christian home. I didn't grow up in a Christian home. Perhaps you're blessed to grow up in a Christian home. Therefore, you believe you're a disciple of Christ. Well, let's test ourselves today by hearing the Word of God to see if we are disciples of Jesus Christ. This is a critical issue, as you can see. One of my role models, uh, just he gives his testimony, a pastor, theologian from the 1900s, Martin Lloyd-Jones, writes, For many years I thought I was a Christian. He grew up in a Christian home, sat under, uh, in the local church for many years, when in fact I was not. It was only later that I came to see that I had not become a Christian and later became one. What I needed was preaching that would convict me of sin, but I never heard this before. The preaching we had, we had was always based on the assumption that we were all Christians. You hear what he's saying? The type of preaching he sat under was assuming everyone in the building was a Christian. Lloyd-Jones was confronted with preaching of sin and repentance and Poof, he realized he never submitted to Jesus as his Lord and Savior. So today we get to see the Lord in action. This is an important topic here. We get to see him begin his discipleship process. We get to see from the, the master himself, the master discipler himself, what discipleship's all about. So we'll be at a Mark chapter 1. So let's rise. Uh, Mark chapter 1, 14 through 20. If you have your Bibles, I hope you carry a Bible around. It's very helpful as a helpful reminder. And matter of fact, it's a great discipleship tool. The other day, we were hanging out with some brothers at the coffee shop. We're opening up the Bible, and somebody comes to us and says, Are you Christians? Yes, we are. It's a symbol. It's a flag to let everyone know that you are a follower of Christ. Okay, Matthew, uh, Mark chapter 1, verse 14. Now, after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And he was going along by the Sea of Galilee. He saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting net in the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat, mending the nets. Immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went away to follow him. Please have a seat. So the topic is the beginning of discipleship. And the two uh, uh, Hangers, so to speak, that I'm going to give you ahead of time so you can follow along a little bit easier is the beginning of discipleship starts with the message of discipleship. We're going to find out what the message of discipleship is all about. And the beginning of discipleship starts with the call of discipleship. What does the call of discipleship entail? Okay. Scene one, let's check out the message of discipleship. Let's take a look at verses 14 and 15. This is a summary of Jesus' teaching throughout his three-year ministry on earth. This is what the essence of what he was preaching. Okay, Verse 14, Now, after John had been taken into custody, John the Baptist has been arrested. John the Baptist is called the greatest born of a woman, according to Jesus. John the Baptist prepared the way of the Lord. 
John the Baptist preached repentance and for the forgiveness of sins. John the Baptist said, he must increase and I must decrease. And now the increasing portion of Jesus' ministry is being brought up. And John the Baptist is being faded out by the providential hand of the Lord. John the Baptist has been arrested by Herod, later to be executed. Which opens up the door for Jesus to come in and preach. Verse 14, Jesus came into Galilee, northern Israel, and preaching the gospel of God. This is what Jesus came to do. He came to preach. This word preaching means to herald or proclaim, not whispering. He's shouting it from the mountaintops, shouting it from the synagogue, shouting it at the seashore. Jesus, every chance he gets, is preaching. That's right. Jesus was a preacher. Jesus was a preacher. And it's very fitting, after all, because when God speaks, speaks, things happen. I mean, as a reminder, Genesis 1. God said, let there be light, and then there was light. God spoke, and all of creation existed. When God speaks, things happen. Genesis 9, God speaks, and the nation of Israel is formed. This is where the power is at. Speak, O Lord. Speak, O Lord. There's even prophecy that the Messiah would be preaching. Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me, the anointed one, the Messiah, to bring good news to the afflicted, to preach good news, the gospel to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim, there it is again, liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. This prophecy in Isaiah 61, is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. This is, this is what's happening here. Jesus was supposed to be a preacher. He was a preacher. And he preached the gospel. Preaching is God's vehicle. You may wonder, why do we spend so much time preaching? Why do we spend 50 minutes out of the service preaching? Why do we spend a whole hour of ace teaching the Bible? Why is it so important? Why do we sing music that is biblical and truth? Filled with truth. Why do we sing, speak, O Lord? Why do we pray, speak, O Lord? Well, preaching is God's vehicle to engineer spiritual movements. Just as God said, let there be light, and then there was light, God builds his church through the preaching of his word, going back to the master and handed down throughout the generations. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who I quoted, uh, read, quoted earlier, says, what is it that heralds the dawn of a reformation or of a revival? We need revival, do we not, in our land? Do we not need revival? It's obvious. As Pastor Jeremy prayed, there's a lot of hurts, there's a lot of sin dominating our culture and society. Back to this quote. It is a renewed preaching, not only a new interest in preaching, but a new kind of preaching. A revival of true preaching has always heralded these great movements in the history of the church. For example, he brings up the birth of the church. Peter and Paul in the book of Acts preaches. And the church is born and begins to be built. At the Protestant Reformation against Roman Catholicism, against legalism, 
People like Luther, Calvin, Knox, Latimer, Ridley preach. And there's a great reformation. In the Great Awakening in America, Jonathan Edwards, Whitfield, and the Wesleys were preaching. The Word of God was going out. Many were coming to Christ. Many were submitting themselves to the Lordship of Christ. Discipleship is about a, starts with a message. Preaching. So the proclamation of the Word is a top priority in any local church. Should be at every local church. It is a priority here at Evergreen Church. Preach the word, the Lord says. And what was the Lord's message? Look at, let's look at verse 15. He explains what he was preaching and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. The time is fulfilled. Old Testament themes and Old Testament prophecy pointed that God is the king and he will restore all things. Isaiah 9 talks about, a, to us a child will be born. And the government will rest upon his shoulders. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace. And there'll be no end to the increase of his government. Let's talk about Jesus. This is a very famous prophecy that we read during Christmas time, but this is a prophecy about Christ. This is what he, the Lord means. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God, this word kingdom refers more to the rule or reign. In other words, the rule or reign of God is at hand. The king is here, Jesus is saying. The king is here. Good news. The king is here. When Jesus steps into the scene, as John the Baptist prepared the way of the Lord, he's saying, the Lord is here. The king is here. And isn't that good news? Reading articles about what happened in Texas. Children being killed. Faithful teachers being killed. Churches being shot up. Faithful church members and Christians being killed. Doesn't your heart long for the king to take over? It is good news that Jesus Christ came to say that the king is here. So in a, at the essence of what is the message of discipleship all about? It's about Jesus Christ, the king. If you're not talking about Christ, you're not discipling. You're talking about something else. You're discipling something else. We're not building up disciples of Christ. You're building up disciples of something else. If Christ is not saturating your words... You're not proclaiming Christ. You're not building disciples. Charles Spurgeon said, this is a good exhortation for me as a preacher. Charles Spurgeon is a great preacher from the past. The motto of all true servants God must be, we preach Christ and him crucified. A sermon without Christ in it is like a loaf of bread without any flour in it. You never hear Christ in, in, from this pulpit you should be saying, what is going on, preacher? What are you doing? Why is this so important? That was a Christless sermon. What is going on? Charles Spurgeon. So the message of discipleship is about Christ. 
saying the good news, the king is here, Jesus Christ is a king, and therefore, as verse 15 says, how shall we respond? Repent and believe in the gospel, Jesus says. This is the natural, appropriate response to knowing that the king is here. Repent and believe in the gospel. I, I believe it's repent and believing are two sides of the same coin. Heads and tails. Heads and tails. Think about a coin. Heads and tails. When we used to use coins, heads and tails, right? Whether you flip heads or tails, it really means the same thing. Tails. Let's say you, you flip tails. And you, it's re- about repentance. Repentance is the negative aspect of our response to who the King, Jesus Christ. What does that mean? It's more than a feeling where you feel bad or you feel remorse. It's deeper than that. Repentance, the, the, the tail side of the coin, repentance means that we turn away from something. We change our mind. We do an about face to a new direction. So it's the negative side of our response. We're turning away from something or someone we shouldn't be following. Heads, if you, if you flip heads, and, and we talk about belief or believing this is the positive aspect of our response to Jesus Christ. Heads and tails, right? It's pretty easy for us to remember. It's more than intellectual belief or understanding. Like, okay, I understand who Jesus is. Perhaps you're sitting here, I know this already. Well, it's deeper than that. To know somebody is much more deeper than that. Belief, this side of repentance and belief means that what we turn to the positive side, what we turn to, what we entrust ourselves to. So when we believe, we are consciously turning to something. And when we do that, we turn away from what we repent of. On the tail's end of it, repentance, when we repent, we turn away from something and we turn to what we believe in. So if you repent, you've got to automatically turn to something. And if you believe, that means you're abandoning old ways of thinking. And in these terms, repent and believe, they're in the present tense in the original language. That means it's an ongoing thing. It's not a one-time act. It's you continue to repent. You continue to put off the old man. You continue to turn away from sin and temptation. And you continually turn to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. It's a constant thing. So why is this good news? Why is this good news? Well, Number one, the kingdom of God exists now. Where does it exist? Jesus sits on the throne in heaven, but also Jesus sits on the throne in the hearts of Christians. If you're a genuine disciple of Christ, he rules you. Maybe we don't obey perfectly, but we genuinely look to him as our Lord, as our king. So the kingdom of God exists right now. However, the kingdom of God will be fully revealed in the end when Jesus comes and destroys everything and rebuilds the new heavens and the new earth. That's when that would be fully realized. But Jesus is on the throne. Make no mistake about it. Now, in order to understand good news, I often like to say, I I share with my Bible study this week, you have to understand the bad news. What's the bad news? Well, the bad news, judgment is coming flames of fire or judgment are, is coming. And those outside the kingdom, if Jesus is not your king, if you're sitting here right now and you know that Jesus is not your king, eternal judgment is coming. That's bad news. And the Bible says we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've all made mistakes. We've all turned and rebelled against the king. And all rebels will be judged in eternal hell. Serious bad news. 
But the good news is this, that if you're inside the kingdom, you'll be spared of that judgment. You get to escape that judgment because of the king and what he's done for you and me, Christians. And that we get to live with him, the king, in the new heavens and new earth forever. That's good news. And the good news also says that there is still time to repent. It was great news as Jesus was proclaiming this because he wasn't coming with judgment. He was coming as the Lamb of God. He didn't come as the Lion of Judah yet. And right now there's time. If you're sitting here right now thinking, I know I'm not a disciple of Christ. There's time to join and enter into the kingdom right now. Repent from following something else, another God in your life. It could be a formal God like Buddha or Allah for our Islamic friends. Or it could be an informal God of your career, your spouse, your own health, whatever it may be, money. These are all gods too. You repent from following after these things, meaning you don't make these things the priority of your lives, and you believe, you turn to Jesus as the Lord and Savior of your life. You believe that he died, Jesus Christ, God himself, died for you, for you on the cross and paid the payment of sin on the cross so that he could forgive you and me and bring us into his kingdom. You believe this. You believe that he's alive and he's coming back to judge sinners. He's just, you believe he's alive and he's coming back to take you and me back to be with him forever. Therefore, repent and believe. Good news. It's not too late. It's not too late. Have you repented and believed in Jesus Christ? Whether you know you're a Christian or not, answer that question intentionally in your mind and your heart right now. Have you repented and believed in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? I hope right now there's a bunch of yeses going on in your minds and hearts throughout the sanctuary. God knows. God knows. But if you haven't, do it today. Do it right now. Come see one of us after the service. Pastor Jeremy and I will be back there. Come grab us. We'd love to talk to you. Any other pastor, as a matter of fact. So the message of the gospel must be clear in discipleship. You may be asking me, Pastor Rocky, how'd you get this theme here? Discipleship is a central theme of our church. Um, well, Matthew 28, but how, how do you piece together this saying, you know? When I was coaching, we used to say competition is the central theme of the program. So my, my mentors from the past have uh, kind of influenced me and redeemed that concept for the, 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 with a great commission. Competition is the central theme of the program. I mean, people knew about it. They heard about it. We were fairly successful starting from college and then into the pros. And we've had guest coaches come all over the place, high school, junior high, uh, I mean, Pop Warner, junior college. They're all there in the pros, college coaches. They're all coming, but they read all the material. They've seen the interviews on, on the internet, but they wanted to see firsthand what does a competitive culture look like? How do we implement a competitive culture within our team to help us win? Well, good news. We're not talking about competition, but we're talking about discipleship. Today, Jesus, in this next scene, gives us a real-life example of how he conducted discipleship, how he implemented and began his discipleship process of us with these four future disciples. So the scene shifts to the shores of Galilee as he calls his first disciples. So scene two, the call of discipleship. And the setting is at the Sea of Galilee. 
right on the shores. The sea is actually a lake. They call it the Sea of Galilee, but it's a lake. And really it was probably the favorite part of my trip to Israel. I love Jerusalem. Those things were incredible. I love the Dead Sea, Masada. All those things were wonderful. But the Sea of Galilee captured my heart because it still looks untapped. It's still a country. I could kind of imagine what it looked like 2,000 years ago as Jesus is preaching on the, the Sermon on the Mount from the hillside. I could see the shores still the same. Not much has been built. A few churches, perhaps a restaurant or two, but it looks pretty much the same. As I close my eyes, I could see the Sea of Galilee nestled in a bowl. There are hills surrounding the, the lake where the wind comes off and you can see where storms could start arising in, in the middle of the night. You can hear the sound of the water coming gently against the shore, rocky shore, a lot of rocks. And the lake is actually fed by seven springs and the snow cap that melts from the peak of Mount Hermon and makes its way down into the Sea of Galilee. And when you get that warm water of the spring water and the cold water of, the, of Mount Hermon, the dew of Hermon, you get a lukewarm environment, which makes a fertile environment for fish to thrive and grow, which would mean a thriving fishing community. And this is the scene that we see right now out of verse 14, I mean, verse 16. Jesus enters into the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And it says, as he was going along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea. For they were fishermen, of course. That's what they did for a living because they lived near the Sea of Galilee. That is the big industry. And then later on in verse 19, this is going on a little farther. He saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat mending the nets, fishing nets. They're all fishermen. So Jesus, Jesus shows up at the Sea of Galilee and providentially there are four brothers there. Simon, who will be known as Peter someday, and Andrew, James, and John. Two sets of brothers. And in verse 17, we learn what is the call of discipleship all about. We heard what the message was about. It's about Christ as the King, as the Lord. That's good news. Now, verse 17 Jesus details to us in living color, as we can see him talk to Simon and uh, Andrew, what the call of discipleship is all about. So read along with me. It's verse 17. And Jesus said to them, follow me. Let's stop right there. Follow me, Jesus says. This is a call of discipleship, to follow Jesus if the message is about Jesus is Lord, it goes right along with follow the Lord. Jesus is Lord. And in other words, disciple is a follower of Jesus Christ. In its plainest sense, it, a disciple follows Jesus Christ. Jesus is not our co-pilot. Like, hey, Jesus, come into my passenger seat. Help me navigate through the direction I want to go in my life. He's not our co-pilot. Jesus is not a simple add-on who enhanced me, uh, my life, so my kingdom will become greater. Jesus, I think you could help me and, and strengthen me to do this. He'll, Jesus, I think you could help me with my schoolwork. Jesus, I think you could help me raise my children. Jesus, I think you could help me thrive in business. Isn't, Jesus is much more than that. 
Jesus is not our co-pilot. Jesus is not our tutor, not our life coach. He's not any of those things. We follow Jesus. We follow Jesus. We do not follow traditions. We do not follow culture, church culture. We do not follow human logic or even human leaders. You don't follow me. You follow Jesus. Jesus is more than a formula of living principles and ideas. Jesus is the one we follow. And what does he say? Well, what does he say? He says, I'll make you fishers of men. Followers of Christ fish for men. And and this is a good metaphor, is it not, church? Because the disciples, these four disciples were fishermen. They get it. You want to talk to a sports guy, you make sports metaphors, right? You want to talk to a businessman, you make business metaphors. These are fishermen. And Jesus is making a perfect metaphor for these four to understand. I fished a little bit, not with nets, not business fishing like these men. These are serious fishermen. I've been to Mammoth Lakes. You know, how many of us like to go to Mammoth? We pack a rod and reel, get our tackle box, right? Make sure our lines are tied correctly. Make sure there's no tangles. And the number one question I get from people who I meet at the, at the shops or just along the lake is this. Now, I think you already know what I'm going to say for those of us who have been to Mammoth. What kind of bait did you use? Right? That's what they ask. Right? Do they not? Do you use power bait? You know, the fluorescent green or pink kind or the orange color maybe? Night crawlers? These are worms. Right? Lures? You just dip it in the garlic sauce. Maybe that's the key, right? I mean, we hear all that stuff. This is what's working right now. You got to get the garlic and you got to dip it in and that's what's going to get a bunch of bites, right? And what kind of bait do you use? Well, as we go fishing for men, what kind of bait are we to use to catch men and women for Jesus Christ? Kyle Eidelman An author writes or says, what you win them with, comma, you will win them too. Let me say that again. What you win them with, comma, you will win them too. In other words, whatever you advertise Jesus, who who Jesus to be, is what they'll be drawn to. This is the terms of agreement. This is why I'm going to come to Jesus Christ. So here's some false baits, so to speak. They got fake worms. These are these at the, at the tackle shop, but these these are false baits for discipleship. How about this? False bait number one: self-help. Jesus. By the way, if you come to Jesus, He will improve your marriage. You'll be a greater father. He'll help you be a better coach. He'll help you win more games. If you're if that's the Jesus that you're proclaiming, you're building into a different type of kingdom. You're basically helping this person build, in, build up their own kingdom. The focus is not on Jesus' kingdom, but their own. Yeah, you're right. I want him to sit with me so he could bless me and help me to do my life better. All they would want, perhaps, is principles of living. Tell me how to live. Give me some wisdom here so I could be more effective. That's the self-help Jesus. How about bait number two? How about the prosperity Jesus? Look, if you follow Jesus, you always be healthy. You always have a job. You you have mental health. You'll be fine. Well, 
If you're feeding that now, you're basically saying to this person, Jesus is here for your health and wealth, for this life now. Jesus is here to build your best life now. And when we all know as Christians, we know our, this is our worst life now. Our best life now is with it when we're with the Lord in the new heavens and the new earth. That's, another, that's a false bait. How about another? I'll just give you a third one here. Probably a little bit more prevalent today in our culture. How about the social justice Jesus? Social justice Jesus where the emphasis of fixing today, this world that's falling apart. Let's focus on meeting the needs of the people today. You could be part of a cause and help a movement happen today and fix today, the Ill, social ills of today. Nothing wrong in themselves, of course. We want to help people, but the, go- the gospel message is watered down. There is no issue of sin and repentance now. It's how to fix today. And an interesting thing, as we studied the scriptures, I was meeting with some men this weekend, and one of them pointed out to me that um, Jesus did not come to fix the world. Amen? He didn't come to liberate. He didn't come to fix economic issues. He came to address sin. The biggest issue that we all have. Jesus says, I came to seek and save the lost. What is the only real bait then? Well, the bait, as we talked about before from the message, is that Jesus is king. Jesus is Lord. And good news, you could be in his kingdom. All you have to do is repent and believe that he is your king. Submit to him as your Lord. And when you have that type of uh, mindset in mind for this person, this person is thinking, okay, I'm here to help build his kingdom, not my kingdom. It's not about me. It's about Jesus Christ, the Lord. I am his disciple. He, I follow him. He doesn't follow me. This is discipleship. This is discipleship. And what happened here? What happened here? Verse 18. How did they respond? Immediately. What did they do? They left their nets and followed him. Praise God. Verse 20. Immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went away. To what? To follow him. They responded, you leave your things, leave your empire, and come follow me and help build my empire. That's what Jesus said. And these men now, we we may look at them as common, ordinary fishermen, which they were, but they were doing quite well. They They were involved in a lucrative fishing business. This was not like you have nothing better to do. Come join me. No, no. These men were quite capable I mean, John and uh, Mr. Zebedee, they had hired servants. Who has that? This is a thriving business. This is a big ask. Let me just say that this much. They had need. They had ambition back then as well. We're not the only ones who have ambition and concerns and bills to pay, so to speak. So what is the cost of discipleship? It costs us everything to be a disciple. Although it's, it's salvation is free, discipleship, to be a disciple costs us everything. They left their nets, their father, they left their hired hands to follow Jesus. Jesus sits on the throne of the disciples' heart. Salvation is free, like I said. By, by grace we are saved. But obedience costs us everything. 
our own desires, our own will, or even our motivation. They left their nets. It's significant. I mean, nets, let's translate that to us today. I don't know if there's any fishermen here for, as, as a vocation, but nets, that's your skill. That's what you're good at. That's what you spend a whole lifetime perfecting. That's where you have an identity. I may not be good at all things, but I know I could fish. I know I could computer program. I know I could coach. I know I could do something. I know I could teach. I know I could do music. That's your net. Father, they left Zebedee. We all have relationships. They left their father. They left their familiar relationship. What relationships keep you from following Christ? Is it parents? Is it ancestors who are no longer alive anymore? Is it that boyfriend or girlfriend that you shouldn't be with right now, right? These are all relationships that you may have to give up to follow Jesus. Hired service, this is their career, their business. This is a lot. Here's a word of encouragement out of Luke 14. Let me read this for us here. Out of Luke 14, 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, that covers it all, does it not? Yes, and even his own life. What? He cannot be my disciples. What is Jesus saying? Obviously, Jesus isn't saying, I need to literally hate my father and mother. It says, honor your father and mother in the scriptures. Obviously, husband's not saying, I need to hate my wife and my children. The Lord says to love your wife as Christ loved the church. But this is basically in relative, relativeness to how much you love Christ, you hate everybody else. Meaning there are no rivals for number one in your life. Jesus is number one. Everybody and everything else is number two. And it's not a close two either. It, it, there's a big gap between one and two. Verse 27, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Jesus is saying, unless you're willing to die to your own self, die to your own desires, your own plans, your own kingdom, you can't be my disciple. You cannot build your own kingdom and help Jesus build his own kingdom. It doesn't work that way. It's all or nothing with Jesus. Very clear, is it not? And as he goes on in Luke 14, he says, count the cost. If you're going to build a big tower, aren't you going to count how much it's going to cost, how much material you need, how much workers that you need? And he goes on to say, if you're going to go fight a war, aren't you going to see how many soldiers you have to see if you can win the war? So Jesus is being very clear. I know you've been there before when you, ha- you know, there's some kind of business agreement or some kind of a relational uh, uh, agreement. You make it clear. This is what we're saying here. Are you willing to count the cost so, so this is going to be a legitimate yes? So Christians, I'm sure this is rever- reverberating in our hearts. Have you count the cost? Jesus is more than just our Savior. Jesus is our Lord. So if you're a non-believer, if you're here right now saying, wow, this is asking a lot. It is asking a lot. It's asking all of you to be owned by Jesus. So the nets that you're holding right now, brothers and sisters, 
And I'm going to temper this too as well. None of us follows Jesus perfectly, right? We're all in a process. We are, we're still kind of clinging on to some nets, all right, old nets. What type of nets do you need to let go of to follow Jesus more faithfully? Is it the net of people-pleasing? Is it the net of your own pride or your own selfishness? These are all nets, too, that capture our thoughts and our mind and our emphasis here. What do we need to let go of? What is Jesus Christ, the Lord, calling you to do today, right now? Right now, what is he telling you to do? Some of us are called to be in full-time preaching. That's a unique role. These disciples ended up being the 12, but right here I believe they're just being asked to be followers of Christ, just like you and me. Some of us are called to leave and go abroad as missionaries. Let me give you another illustration here from Martin Lloyd-Jones. One of the reasons why he's a role model to me, he made some similar choices that I'm familiar with, and He was a medical student at St. Bart's Hospital, which is a significant medical school in England in his day. And in 1921, as a young man, he became the assistant to the royal physician, Sir Thomas Horder. So Sir Thomas Horder was the royal physician to the royal family, and he became his assistant. Well, someday, Sir Thomas Horder would have to retire, and perhaps Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones would become the royal physician to the royal family. Significant. He was on the fast track to uh, medical success. But in 1927, he left all that to become a full-time preacher. And many people have asked him, why? Why did you do this? Why did you give up medicine? Isn't that a good thing? It's not like he came from a dark past. You're helping people. And this is what he said. In Ian Murray's biography of him, Jones says, I felt... Like saying today, if you knew more about the work of a doctor, you would understand. We spend most of our time rendering people fit to go back to their sin. I saw men on their sick beds. I spoke to them of their immortal souls. They promised grand things. Then they got better, and back they went to their old sin. I saw I was helping these men to sin, and I decided that I would do no more of it. I want to heal souls, he said. If a man has a diseased body and his soul is all right, he is all right to the end. But if a man with a healthy body and a diseased soul is all right for 60 years or so, and then he has to face an eternal hell. Ah, yes, Lloyd-Jones said. We have sometimes to give up those which are good for that which is the best of all. The joy of salvation, the newest, newness of life. He goes on to say in his book, Preach, uh, Preachers and, Preaching and Preachers, I would say without any hesitation that the most urgent need in the Christian church today is true preaching. And as it is the greatest and the most urgent need in the church, it is obviously the greatest need of the world also. Evidently, Lloyd-Jones found something greater to do. And for him, that was a unique call. And it was very clear, this is why we're doing this. And chances are, most of us are going to be called exactly where you're at right now. Right? Where are you at right now? Verse 16 and 19, you, you see the, the future disciples simply fishing. 
at the Sea of Galilee where they've been for generations. They're just living their lives. But Jesus called Simon while he was doing what he was doing to be a disciple. And he says, Simon, come, follow me. And who was Simon? Right? I said, you all would know that he would become Peter. But this was Peter before he was Peter. I mean, think about it. Peter, as we know it, became the passionate leader of the disciples. He's the one that preached boldly in Acts 2 and thousands come to Christ. Peter is the one who authored two books in the Bible. But at the time, Peter was just an ordinary, uneducated fisherman. That's who he was. Where are you at right now, church? Where are you at right now? And who has God placed in front of you right now? Jesus happens to be walking along the shores, and he happens providentially to run to these four disciples. Who has been providentially placed in front of you right now? Who do you hang out with all the time? Certainly in your home, could be your spouse, your children, neighbors, at work, your boss, your coworkers, your clients, your customers. You see them on a regular basis. You don't need to ask God, am I supposed to reach out and tell them about Christ? Of course you are. Jesus said, go and make disciples. Of course you are. At school, as, as school's ending, you know, you, you have a new teacher perhaps next fall, new classmates or the same classmates. Have you been telling people about Christ? In other words, just fish in the, your Sea of Galilee. Wherever you've been placed, fish in that lake, okay? You don't have to go to a different lake. The lake is right here. You've got plenty of opportunities right here and right now. Certainly the Great Commission has to do with uh, reaching out to the ends of the earth. But in Southern California, the ends of the earth are right here, right across the street. Isn't that amazing? I want to just ask a question here. What? You give up. And you think of uh, in your mind right now, what are you thinking that God would want you to give up? What nets do you need to let go of? What relationships do you need to walk away from? What priorities do you need to walk away from so you can have new priorities? What, what comes to mind? Write that down in your mind, in your journal, wherever. Type it into your phone. Figure that out right now so you can be more effective to follow Jesus Christ as your Lord. Because this is a statement now, whatever you decide to give up and whatever you do give up will give off an aroma of Christ to those who are watching you. If you want to be an effective disciple, show the people you're willing to give up these things. And they might start wondering, wow, you actually believe what you say you believe, that Jesus is your Lord. Fathers, if you wish to raise up your children in a home, I don't have any techniques. I don't have any schedules to give you right now. However, I'll say this much according to the scriptures. Follow hard after Christ. There are no tricks to that. If you want to evangelize your children, show them that Jesus is your Lord, that Jesus is your treasure. Because let's look at verse 17. What does it say? 
I will make you become fishers of men. It doesn't say you train yourself to be fishers of men. It says, I will make you become fishers of men. Jesus does this to us. And the more intensely, the more close we follow Jesus, the closer we are to Christ. How can you not be discipling people? Mothers, I know it's a hard task, thankless task, particularly if you're raising little ones. It's tiring. Nobody knows. You hope that your husband notices and tells you something once in a while. But most of the things that you do, nobody knows. God knows. If you want to raise your little ones to love Christ, obey him. Stay near him. Let them smell your Christ-like aroma. More is caught than taught. We understand this. Remember, Jesus says, I will make you fishers of men. I, Jesus, will make you fishers of men. To finish up here, why did they do this? You know, why would you give up things like the disciples? For those things that popped into your head, why would you give that up? Why would you give that up? Well, I believe that the disciples already knew who Jesus was. Through John the Baptist, John 1, there was an introduction. Luke 5, there was a miraculous catch of fish that takes place. They were able to know Jesus. This wasn't just a one-time meeting. They knew that Jesus is the hidden treasure worth more than the field. They knew that Jesus was a precious pearl worth searching for. They knew it. They knew it. It was a very logical decision. Like, I will follow Jesus because it makes sense. I'm not giving up my life and getting something worse. I'm giving up my life and getting something greater, something more eternal. Do you treasure Jesus Christ more than anything in your life? Do you treasure him more than anything in your life? If you want to be a discipler, the people around you could tell what you treasure the most, how you spend your time, what you talk about, uh, the decisions that you make. Where's Christ and all that? Where's Christ and all that? How you live, Paul says, watch your life and your doctrine to Timothy, because how you live undergirds and enhances like steroids, okay? When you talk about Christ to your kids and to other people around you, they believe you more. Let me read this out of this book uh, called Delighting in the Trinity by Michael Reeves. I thought this was a helpful quote. Even as you read the Bible, we're about the word. We made a big emphasis on the word. What are you looking for? Michael Reeves writes, But when you see that Christ is the subject of all the scriptures, that he is the word, the Lord, the son who reveals his father, the promised hope, the true temple, the true sacrifice, the greatest high priest, the ultimate king. That's what we're talking about. Then you can read. Not so much asking. Listen now, church, this is important. Not so much asking, what does this mean for me right now? But what do I learn here of Christ? Knowing that the Bible is about him and not, not me means that instead of reading the Bible, obsessing about me, I can gaze on him. And as through the pages, you get caught up in the wonder of his story. 
you find your heart strangely pounding for him in a way you never would have if you had treated the Bible as a book about you. The Bible is about Christ. The Bible is about Christ. Discipleship is about Christ. The disciples knew that they were getting something greater. Jesus is the greatest treasure of all. Let me just finish off with this reading here. I don't think I have to explain much. It'll be very clear. He who has ears, let him hear. Matthew 16 says, Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man, that's Jesus, is going to come in the glory of his Father, that's God, with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. He who has ears, let him hear. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. So clear what discipleship is all about. But it's supernatural that we will surrender our lives to you as our Lord. Father, please take our lives and let it be consecrated to the Lord. Father, please take our moments and our days. Let them flow in ceaseless praise. Father, take our hands and let them move at the impulse of thy love. Father, take our feet and let them be swift and beautiful for you. Father, take our voice. Let us sing always, only for our King, Jesus Father, take our lips and let them be filled with messages from you. Father, take our silver and our gold. Let not us hold back a cent from you. Father, take our intellect and all the education that you give us and use everything as you would choose for us to use them. Father, take our wills and make it yours so that it's no longer ours. And finally, Father, take a heart. It's all yours. It's your royal throne. So thank you, Father, for your kindness to us. In Jesus' name, amen.